Welcome to That Anthro Podcast, the podcast dedicated to anthropology. Together, each week, we will be learning from the experts and researchers that are researching our pasts and today's problems. My name is Gabriella Campbell, and I'll be interviewing a new guest each week to bring to you the latest and greatest in anthropology, based right here out of Santa Barbara. Join me for weekly episodes, whether you're an anthropology buff or looking to learn something new. Welcome to That Anthro Podcast. And now, a word about the sponsor of our podcast, Anchor. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to That Anthro Podcast. Um, It's a pleasure to get to talk with Dr. Alicia Boswell today. So Dr. Alicia Boswell is an assistant professor in the UCSB History of Art and Architecture Department, and her research and teaching focus around themes of ancient Andean archaeology, conservation, cultural heritage, craft production, cultural landscapes, and much more, which I'm really excited to discuss in today's episode. So welcome, Dr. Boswell. Thank you so much. I'm excited to chat with you today. Yeah, me too. Well, I always really like to begin each episode with kind of a bit of general background about our guests and how like you first became passionate about anthropology. So where did your journey to becoming an anthropologist and archaeologist begin? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, So I really fell in love with history in high school, actually, in AP courses. And I was convinced when I went to college to that I was going to study history and I want to study the past. Um, And it was in college, um, actually at the University of Michigan, where I did my undergraduate degree that I ended up in a couple of introductory anthropology classes to get those GEs done. And I just fell in love with the material. Um, And as well as I should say the actually the um, the history of Latin America too. So I did end up majoring in history, but I realized and I was introduced to anthropology, but I realized that actually kind of too late in my undergraduate career to change majors that archaeology is what I wanted to do. That's really where it kind of fell together. I had my first field school experience as an undergraduate. Um, was that in Latin America? It was in Peru, actually. Okay. It was in Peru um, where I ended up uh, spending most of the, my <laughs> where I spent most of my career so far doing research in the Moche Valley. Um, outside of the city of Trujillo. Um, And so I ended up doing a field school there and fell in love with it and really loved this idea of trying to understand the past through objects, through material culture. Um, Of course, the Andes is one of these unique situations for ancient um, and studying ancient peoples where we don't have a written uh, script language. And so really we have not that um, material culture is less important in studying any other ancient traditions, but we really rely on the material record in a way that a lot of um, other archaeologists who are working in other parts of the world, they can draw on writings. Um, and so um, for me, that this is a fascinating conundrum and challenge, um, but also, you know, the histories of the ancient Andes I think is really is really emerging in a lot of ways where we've learned so much even in the short time I've been a professional in the field about the cultural traditions that we didn't know 10 years ago, um, in part because we have such a biased perspective of these histories because we don't have writing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that really, for me, is one of the exciting things about working in the Andes. 
um, is that there is so much ongoing research that it's really reframing um, how we understand these cultural traditions in a lot of ways. Yeah, really pushing the envelope of, you know, the the scholarship and the research. And that's a really fun position to be in. The other thing that I think is unique about the Andes, and I think I've kind of, you know, when we had Michelle Coons on, we talked a bit about, you know, that region. They're also the preservation and the conditions really allow for such great preservation of material culture, which I think people that are not in the field can, can kind of forget that not every environment really preserves everything to the level that places really arid, dry conditions like Peru does. Um, in particular, the area that you're working in, because I know there's a lot of different like microenvironments within Peru, you know, super high Andes, where exactly, like you were saying, just outside of Trujillo? Yeah, well, that's so I've done most of my work. Um, so the coast of Peru is very dry, right? Yeah. And the south coast of Peru, incredibly one of the driest deserts in the world. And we have incredible preservation of material culture as a result of that. Um, I work, or my, I should say my previous work um, that I've been doing, that was part of my dissertation work, was outside the city of Trujillo, and it was inland, and mm -hmm. it was in an area that is just kind of beginning to get rain. So I didn't have the preservation in, in an area, and it's, not, it's an ecological zone we call the Chapayunga. It's also... Um, and we, we can talk more about that in a second, but um, <laughs> the but um, what's unique about this environment is that um, because it does get a, well, this is not a unique thing. I was, I should back up for a second and say. No problem. Um, it's not as, certainly not as dry as many other places in Peru. Um, but I would just like to say that a lot of the research that we have done in Peru, that has been done in Peru, um, that, you know, of course we have exceptional preservation in many parts of that modern day, the boundaries of the modern day country. Um, but also that's kind of sometimes biased um, some of our researchers in questions they're asking um, in part because of the types of material culture they have available to talk about the peoples. So um, there's also, um, so that's also something to think about too. But yeah, Peru has one of the most diverse um, is one of the most diverse environments in the world, yeah. um, you know, from the dry coast to the highlands, um, to the jungle on the eastern slopes of the Andes, the cloud forest as you go down into the, um, into the Amazon. And so um, there are these really kind of exceptional environments that um, as more research is being done in places like the Amazon, we're finding out that surprise, surprise, humans are incredibly resilient. They've been optimizing these spaces for, you know, thousands and thousands of years and it's really us that are kind of catching up and trying to be like whoa okay yes of yeah. course of course you you know we're creating gardens in the amazon that's not anything um shouldn't be anything surprising but of course our perspective and traditions that many of us come from from these western biases that we unfortunately um have been a have been kind of uh have have given us this this particular lens um and, and how the field has evolved um, so I feel like a lot of the times we're just kind of catching up, um, of course, um, and learning things that, you know, these, that indigenous peoples, um, have, have known for, of course, um, all, all periods, long periods of time. Yeah. For you and your research, has that kind of, since as you're making that realization, like, has it made you want to work closer with 
living indigenous peoples because they have such like you know that unique perspective and not that that's necessarily like a revolutionary thought that I've just come up with but I'm sure for you you know if you're having those thoughts you're like oh you know what are other ways that we can dismantle that western you know that western view absolutely absolutely and ethnographic research has been really important and and it's just the ethno-historic research too so people who've um, been learning you know learning about Andean ways of life through the written record as well as ethnographers who've spent, um, you know, um, who spent time with indigenous communities throughout the Andes um, and recording those experiences. Those are really important, that's important data sets um, for archeologists that we draw on as well. Um, where I work in Peru um, in, you know, the, probably the um, peoples who were living in the area that I did my dissertation work, which today is called Coyambay, and it was actually called um, Coyambay um, under the Inca, um, and, and may have been known um, and, and may have had a similar name prior to that period. Um, the history of that region is one that actually the indigenous language of that area was wiped out very early. Um, and so we don't have great histories. The people who live there now um, do not associate themselves directly with the ancient peoples of the area at all. Um, but I think that you know these people, the people who are living there now, the way they, um, how they choose to construct their homes, for example, um, and how they optimize their environment. This is a rural area. Um, these are that they are. Um, agriculturalists and farmers, they have, um, they have cattle, you know, so how they are caring for the landscape and interacting with the landscape, I've learned so much in terms of how, you know, um, how to think about those spaces and how, how, how to use those resources in a way that um, I would not have, have, have known otherwise. Um, so local communities are essential for informing archaeologists, not just about the landscape, um, but, you know, of course, also their worldviews. One of the things I find really, um, and I've been involved in a lot of community work in Peru throughout my research. That's mm -hmm. something I've kind of prioritized hand in hand with um, my, uh, I'll just put quotes, academic research, the, you know, the, the questions that I'm asking and why I'm, I'm, I'm doing archaeological research in that area. Um, and so these, uh, the community, local community has been a, an important community partner for me to do my research um, in terms of, uh, well, teaching me, um, but then of course, you know, they've been really receptive to learning about the past because it's not something that they, um, they themselves um, have know much about um, what archeology span is. Um, and, and actually where I'm working, it's not, necessarily like the archaeological sites in the area many of them have never even been recorded and so um, it's something for the people who live there those have just always those parts of buildings have always been there and they've interacted with them in their customary ways um, whereas you know I've come in and, and talked to them about those spaces and you know we can tell a story about the regional history that wasn't available previously and so that's been really exciting for me. Yeah, a super fun way to like, someone described scientists as like storytellers. And it's a super fun way for you to fill in kind of the pieces of the story and connect it to that, you know, the community, like you said, where, 
where those buildings are. I just like the thought of just waking up and being like, oh yeah, that mound that we've seen for like 10 years has just had all this really cool cultural stuff in it. You know, (laughs) I think about that all the time with all of the like discoveries that are going on on like the Channel Islands and stuff. I'm like, one of these days, like they're going to like dig under Ivy and find ancient, you know, humans. (laughs) Well, actually, I will say there's a huge part of our campus that, uh, you know, was part of Chumash community. Yeah, right. The Devereaux Slough or whatever. Yeah. Oh, I'd say outside of this, not like the people were only there, right? So this is, it's absolutely true. And and of course, like, you know, where we live, the physical material remains above the surface are not as visible um, Mm -hmm. yet, you know, and so that's not something, right, that we're facing with an everyday. Well, what's really interesting about the community where I work, where I've been working in Peru is that, of course, like these buildings have been here there, you know, for hundreds of years and they've, the people, the local community has, have optimized them in ways that they, that work that, because nobody has told them that those buildings shouldn't be touched or anything like that, right? Or altered or anything, so, yeah. Yeah. And so, of course, they've taken apart some of those buildings to build their own homes and, and they have every right to do that, you know, um, and so... And I, and so I hope that, you know, in the work that I've done that, you know, the, um, not only in kind of telling, learning or kind of helping them, um, we can kind of write down like a regional history that extends longer um, back into time, um, but that also that they may see some of the cultural values in preserving those places too. Um, and so actually I've been involved in a nonprofit organization that it's now defunct, unfortunately. Um, but for about 10 years, I worked with Brian Bellman at the University of North Carolina um, and Jesus Briseño, who's at um, Peru's Ministry of Culture and Belsi Gutierrez, another Peruvian colleague, as well as um, many other awesome archeologists um, to actually work with local communities in the Moche Valley because um, there's extensive uh, development going on and people are just building on top of archeological sites. There's no sort of controlled um, planning and the way kind of, and so people actually, the way it works is that if you find unclaimed land and build a house, you can claim title to it. And many archeological sites are not registered or if they are, it's a different office than the land management office. And so they don't talk to each other. So by the time that it's recognized that people are squatting on these archeological sites, they've been pretty much destroyed and people have built their homes. So at that point, the local government isn't going to remove them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so one of the things that we've done into trying to protect, especially these rural sites that are much smaller, they're not these monumental centers with um, huge building or huge ceremonial buildings that we call wakas, um, is work directly with local communities because it's really the local communities that can police and prevent these sites from being destroyed. Mm-hmm. Um, so the organization Moche Inc. Um, mobilizing opportunities for community heritage empowerment mm-hmm. um, is mouthful. Um, we partnered with local communities and in doing this, local communities would protect the archeological sites. We'd establish boundaries with them. And in return, we, with the communities, would design community development projects because many of these rural communities are living in various um, stages of poverty. 
Um, some of them, for example, didn't have their own water system and things like that. And so we would invest in projects that their community wanted for their community. And what was, and we raised funds by doing this by offering archaeological field schools. And then we also offered opportunities for um, undergraduates to come down and work on these community projects. And so the fee that students would pay would go directly to these um, community projects. And so for about 10 years, we did this. It was really exciting. And we saw in the middle Moche Valley and we saw exceptional work in preserving these sites. Um, and so that was really exciting to see yeah. um, and get to know and community then, members through that way. Yeah, I was going to say, and then like you said, instituting if they needed like a water source for the community, actually like having a, you know an actual impact on improving that community in a way that's beneficial for them that, that they want. That's they really want. interesting. I hope that you guys can maybe start that up again, like post COVID and get funding, et cetera, you know, going again. Cause that does sound like a really, really cool project yeah. or at least something that like maybe will inspire other similar projects in the region or in Peru and just like you said, yeah. even I think the idea of having like the, un, you know, cause it is essential to have, I understand why it's essential to have a fee for, you know, field experience, like for field schools and stuff. But I really like, you know, having that, that fee that is necessary to have, you know, some administrative costs also go into the projects that like they're working on. I think that's a really, really smart idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And we, you know, we worked with um, engineers without borders for a project and a couple of other different NGOs that, um, you know, the stu- that students would often raise money throughout the year for the projects. And um, I know that there's a lot of stigma with kind of a lot of these service learning experiences, um, pe- you know, undergraduates going up on the, going on these trips and, and really uh, taking advantage of communities, mm-hmm. uh, not, you know, and um, potentially exploiting communities in a way that's not appropriate. And I really hope that nobody walked away from any of our experiences in that way. I mean, what we saw was, you know, we were doing projects that the communities asked for and we helped facilitate them um, because we had access to resources that they didn't and their mm-hmm. local governments haven't been able to provide for them. Um, so it was really, really exciting. And as part of that, we were able to offer some heritage um, learning workshops too. So, you know, educational programs um, to learn about archaeology and learn about the cultural history of the area because in the in Peru's um education system, um, a lot of kind of the, the local histories aren't really incorporated into that curriculum at all. Um, and so, you know, for us, that was something that we also wanted to be able to do um, as part of that too. I mean, and for me, you know, there's this big emphasis on scientists being communicators to the public. And, and I think that's essential. And I think especially for those of us who are privileged enough to do um, research in other countries, we should be contributing as much as we can back to um, back to those communities that allow us to be there. Um, you know, definitely. So, yeah. So that's um, so I did that um, as part of my doctoral work and my graduate training. Um, I'm no longer I don't have an active field research project in that area right now, but I'm still very much connected to communities there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm starting a new project actually up in the northern. Uh, northern Peru and the upper Pira Valley, um, which I think maybe Michelle Coombs mentioned briefly in your conversation yeah. with her. So Do you want to dive that. into that project? Tell us a little, give us a sneak peek. Yeah, sure. So I, some of the, my interests. So um, before I was at UCSB, I was a postdoc at Bard Graduate Center and the, Mel- excuse me, the Metropolitan Museum of Art. 
um, in New York. And during that time, I was studying a collection that was at the Met, um, which it, um, is a group of metal objects. Actually, most of them are regalia, adornments that would have been worn by, a lead by leaders of the Moche. And the history of this collection is really interesting. Um, it arrived in the US prior, um, it's kind of one of the first kind of known collections of this Moche metalwork. Um, and the technology that the researchers identified um, that the technology that they um, were using to gild these objects, so to put gold or silver, really thin layers of gold or silver on it, um, was called electrochemical replacement plating. And this was identified by Heather Lechman. She's, um, she's at um, MIT and she identified this, she identified that they were using this technology called electrochemical replacement plating and, and basically dipping, dipping these objects probably into like uh, liquid gold to coat them. And this was the first time this technology had been identified in the Americas. It was really exciting. Um, but of course, this group of objects were not systematically excavated. Um, we, we do know about their history is that they all do come from the upper Pira Valley and because of kind of when they entered the United States and um, when they were their their ownership history, that's pretty clear. Um, so this happened, you know, in the 70s. But it wasn't until the 80s, of course, that the first systematically excavated elite Moche royal tomb was excavated by Walter Alva at Sipan. And um, a lot of kind of pieces about the collection started to kind of fall together when that was discovered, right? And that that these these objects, many of them would have been worn and all these things. Mm -hmm. um, I have so a quick brother, question. Yeah. The, I know it's, it's you're putting the gold gilding on the outside. What is the base metal that they're constructing these adornments with? So it's, it's a copper alloy. Oh, okay. So it's, it probably is copper with probably um, some, sometimes some gold and silver, but most just copper. This discovery of like, you know, it was in the 80s that Walter Alva excavated this elite Moche tomb, at, or many elite Moche tombs at Sipan. And since then, there have been a number of elite Moche tombs that have been excavated. And so my project is really looking at this now well-documented archaeological record that we have and trying to fit um, the Loma Negra materials this is what the collection um, area the collection is from, is um, how it fits within the Moche world. I've already identified actually that um, the Loma Negra, um, what it looks like anyway, I should say, is that the Loma Negra metal workers or the people who made the regalia um, were using this, a different gilding technique than is commonly used by other Moche um, metal crafts people. Um, so that's really interesting. This technology that um, Heather Lechman identified is really exciting and innovative. Um, and so my kind of research question that I'm looking at right now is kind of what was the social context under which this technology emerged? It's very clear that, um, you know, this technology emerged to gild regalia for elites. <laughs> um, most of the history of metalworking globally we see these technological innovations are usually driven, you know, with um, goals of utilitarian function in mind, right? So, mm -hmm. um, you know, making tools yeah. um, for labor, um, mm -hmm. making weapons. Um, and really, this is kind of a difference of, in the Americas, um, especially, you know, beginning very early in the Andes, that we see this metallurgical technology emerging 
really for adornment of elites. Um, and so because that's kind of the history, it hasn't gotten the metallurgical history of metallurgy has not really um, had wide dialogue with other ancient traditions. Um, so I'm really interested in the sociocultural and political context under which this technology, this gilding technology emerged. Um, because often we assume that in order for something this sophisticated to happen, it has to happen in an urban center, you mm -hmm. know, with sponsored, um, sponsored craftspeople, right? Who have the time and leisure to kind of figure things like this out, right? With sponsorship. But what we know about the upper Pira Valley where these objects came from, the archeological record doesn't suggest that existed at all. Mm. So that's kind of the next project that I'm, yeah. I'm planning. And I was supposed to have a field season this last summer, but of course it didn't happen. So I'm optimistic that in 2022, um, I will be able um, to get out there with Michelle uh, Coons actually. Um, yeah, and we're gonna we do the Michelle. first phase of our project, yeah. She was so fun to get to meet and have, have on the podcast. Just a wonderful connection. And then also it was kind of one of those things where I had like wrote about your class in my questions and then we get on oh. Zoom and she goes, I mean, I know Alicia so well, like we've worked together and she was like, so I was, you know, so happy to see that you also, you know, had, had met her and it, that was really exciting. So uh, I should... Yeah, I should also say for those of us, for those of you that listened to the episode with Michelle, I did mention, but you know, I have had been lucky enough to have a class with Dr. Boswell. And so that was, that was really exciting. And, you know, yeah. we were just talking about hopefully getting to take more classes with her once we're back on campus, which I think, you know, will be a good little transition into kind of, you've clearly been talking about your dedication and your love and passion for Indian archaeology and, and art history, which we'll kind of get into a bit more, but I'd like to dive just a little bit more into like the general life ways of Andean peoples, just because I, I, your class, like truly just so interesting and just the material and the way like we were even talking at just the different terms like waka and patacucci like I just feel like it that context of learning so much about their life way really can shine some more light on when we dive you know into like other questions so I was just kind of curious if you could further elaborate like specifically on some of the subsistence practices and then modes of artistic expression for the people in the ancient Americas because we'll really dive into you know how you examine their material culture and their artistic expressions. Yeah, so um, I think when we think about subsistent practices in the Andes, we certainly uh, need to think about what kind of, um, what part of the Andes people are living in. Um, so on the coast, we see people relying on marine resources. Um, the coast off of modern day Peru is one of the richest fisheries in the world. Um, so there's, um, you know, all kinds of marine resources. We know people were optimizing very early um, we also see them um, beginning to plant and cultivate, um, uh, excuse me, cultivate plants quite early. Um, and something like the development actually of ceramic technology happens much later. So some of the early, um, early plants that we see people caring for actually are cotton. Um, oh, I didn't know that one. Yeah, cotton, which right, is not food stuff, but a, a yeah, resource no, that is essential. Yeah, definitely. Um, as well as squash. Um, and Aww. yeah, peanuts. Um, in the highlands, we see people using tubers or um, they're gonna grow tubers up in those spaces because of course, like it's such a high environment, other types of resources aren't gonna grow. Um, on the coast, we see people growing corn um, as well as many fruits. 
And there's all kinds of microclimates. So depending on where you are, north to south, east to west, you're gonna have a different variety of resources available to you. But what we found in the archeological record, which should not be a surprise, is that people are, one, we know people are definitely moving back and forth between a lot of these spaces. They're exchanging resources um, as well. So despite the fact that, um, you know, people might be living in a coastal valley, they likely have access um, to potatoes and tubers that would be grown up in the highlands. Um, not necessarily really early in the, mm -hmm. in the Andes history, but certainly, you know, um, by the first, early first millennium, we're seeing that. Um, so those are things um, when we think about kind of I like to think about the Andes in terms of environmental niches yeah. and thinking about what resources are optimizes, uh, optimized from different spaces. So my dissertation work in the Moche Valley, it was occurred in the foothills of the valleys. And what's really um, unique about this ecozone is that it's perfect for growing coca plants. Oh. It's one of the few, it's actually the only ecozone, ecological zone on the Western slopes of the Andes where you can grow coca. Now, coca, of course, um, in our modern day society has a really negative, uh, kind of has a negative connotation reputation, of course, for um, because of its association with cocaine. Um, but coca was an essential resource within Andean communities and still remains an essential resource today. It helps people um, by chewing coca. Um, you know, you can, uh, uh, by chewing coca, um, you know, it can, give you that little caffeine boost you need to get going. It's also an appetite suppressant and it helps people adjust to altitude. Um, we know that it's something that people would often work for coca. Um, so they might get kind of paid, they'd be paid in coca leaves um, in more recent, I should say more recent times. Um, and so, and we know that's also, it was an important element in ceremonies as well. So we often find offerings of coca. Um, so, but, you know, thinking about that plant, and where it's available, it's only available in specific zones. And so other communities who are not living in those zones on the Eastern slopes of the Andes or this um, you know, narrow ecological niche on the Western slopes of the Andes, they're gonna have access to it, mm -hmm. right? So um, thinking about then how important relationships are between people in different areas and, and um, becomes um, really important. And, and COCA is just kind of a good, a good example to kind of think about that. Yeah. Do you think that those, you know, that exploitation of resources that were in different places is part of the reason that like the warrior different like empires like conglomerated, uh, stress, you know, what's, what's the word that I want to use? Because, because there were groups before like empires, I feel like is not the better. Do you, do you, I'm like conglomerations of people that controlled large areas of Peru and weren't just located to, to one area. Was that, do you believe that that was kind of a confounding factor that, you know, made those peoples really stretch their influence out into other areas of Peru? Yeah, I would say absolutely. So if you are a political power, you want to become a political force and you want to control people, one of the things that we know is essential is you also need to reward people with things. You need to have, you need to be able to give gifts. You need to be able um, to convince people to pay you with goods, but you also need to give back, right? Um, and so, for example, for so, uh, um, like the Wari, which, you know, are a Highland tradition, they come out of um, the, the Andean, Southern Andean Highlands. 
um, they needed access to coastal resources. Um, and there are different ways of doing that. There is one overtaking people like, you know, um, and forcing them to work for you, right? And moving them around. And I think that, you know, the archeological research in the Nazca um, area kind of suggested that it was something that was happening there. But we see worry, um, kind of worry elements further north on the North Coast too. And they're interacting with North Coast polities in a very different way than we see in the South. Um, we see there actually, there are actually worry ceremonial buildings that have been identified in the Lambayeque region. Um, which is definitely something we wouldn't have said 10 years ago. But, um, you know, but we've known the worry, you know, had a really strong influence on the south coast of Peru. We've known that for a long time. Um, but their presence on the north coast, we're just kind of now identifying how they're present and how mm -hmm. um, they likely were. Um, people are trying to figure out, of course, like how they were interacting with the moche. And um, the following kind of culture group is the moche in that area, the Lambayeque. Yeah, and and that time period is around the moche culture on the north coast of Peru is between two hundred and eight hundred eighty, and the worry is no after that. Yeah, the worry is like yeah. six hundred to like mm -hmm. nine hundred, one thousand ish. I think is kind of like the end date. Yeah, and so there are these. So the the worry overlap with the moche briefly, and for a long time. Um, archaeologists working in the moche we always were very adamant about there's no worry here the moche would never interact with the mori but i think you know it's very clear they you know the, the mori may not have controlled the moche in any way and we know now the moche were not one unified uh political power they were made up of many different polities that were all invested um in this moche cosmology and religious um traditions Mm -hmm. um, but we, it's very clear there's a lot more worry around, I think, um, and other highland traditions like the, 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 excuse me, the Cajamarca tradition, which is a regional highland tradition. Yeah, so there, you know, it's, it's very clear that highland and coastal polities, um, I mean, we know they were interacting, but I think, you know, we know a lot more about the relationships and, um, the types of interactions that they were having, um, now than we did um, 10 years ago. So, and so for the, going back to this idea of looking for resources, um, you know, uh, political powers, they're really, they're interested, they need different types of resources. So, you know, I talked about coca and it being like, it, it's really a prestige resource. It's something that, um, you know, you want to be able to offer people, but you can't not necessarily be able to offer people. So certainly people with political power want to have control and, uh, and, and, and steady supply of it, okay? Um, we also wanna think about this in terms of other perhaps precious resources like spondylus shell, which um, is also known as the thorny oyster, although it's not an oyster, um, <laughs> but it, it's this bright colored, beautiful shell that comes um, really comes from warmer Gulf waters on the, um, uh, um, from the Pacific. And then I think actually, and also on the Atlantic side as well, further north in um, Central America. Mm -hmm. But where it's first available um, for, the, for Andean peoples, right, is going to be kind of north on the coast of Ecuador. Um, and so we, and we know Spondylus shell was really, we, we, find, we found it, it's been found throughout the Andes, it's found in highlands, found on the coast. Um, there were garments that have uh, spondylus shell inlay in them, um, adornments that was worn. We see the whole shell being offered um, 
you know? And so we know that it's really important and people were very interested in having access to it. So, you know, I think that someone like the Warrior, it's not surprising to see their presence on the North Coast because they need access to those resources, yeah. right? For their, for their elites to be able to give to people who are their followers. It's really important, just as important as it was for them to, of course, be interested in controlling the Nazca area and investing in agriculture in that area um, and producing corn um, to feed, you know, themselves and to feed local peoples, etc. So, sorry, I was tangenty. No, that was great. I definitely think that that's kind of one of those conversations that where it just really morphs into like a great train of thought. And I think it's always fun to have those little times where, you know, we kind of, I love, I love the background. (laughs) I love the background. I feel like as much as I truly enjoy learning the specifics of everyone's research, I just as much enjoy hearing them describe the whole context because when you're a researcher or when you're a professional in that field clearly you've been studying this your whole life so you tell a story that's very engaging and overarching in a really cool way that you know someone who may have like a more less like less exact like temporal like location doesn't have that like rich in-depth like background knowledge and it's just such a fun thing also um I won't keep this in the episode but I'm also starting my uh senior research project on some some worry data so I'm very excited about that (laughs) so I may have I've got like that extra and part of it is like with metallurgy and so when you're talking okay oh I wonder I was like oh I wonder (laughs) Yeah, Excellent. really excited for that. <laughs> yeah, well, I look forward to hearing more about that. Yes, you'll definitely see at least at the very least, like a, I'm going to try and do like a poster presentation at like, you know, at one of the, the UCSB undergrad research things at the very least, if not at, you know, some conferences, which great. would obviously be the ultimate goal. But <laughs> That's great. yeah, getting back to you, um, I would love to just hear about your experiences working in Peru, you know, your travels there. I know when the, the art and archaeology of the Andes class, I believe is what I took with you. Um, I, the names uh, at some point, they all just kind of start to blur together, especially because archaeo, I feel like they're all like these really kind of like interesting story names, but anyway, just curious, like what, what you've really, oh, my point was in the class you got to show us a lot of pictures of like you standing next to the monuments that we were talking about in class and I think that that's really cool that you've gotten to spend so much time there and see a lot of the different places uh so I guess this is kind of an open-ended question on what do you enjoy maybe what has been a fun experience for you you know how maybe certain people or places you've been that have had stronger impacts on you than others you know just kind of curious about your general experience yeah. Um, yeah. I've been, thank you. That's a great question. Um, one of my favorite things about my job is that I get to go to Peru and do it there. It's a place that I, I love. I love, um, I love um, the cultural traditions there um, and I have really enjoyed, um, I should say the food. <laughs> yeah. I was going <laughs> to ask if you have a favorite dish, um, but um, which I'm happy to talk lots about that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think that um, you know, being able to spend so much time there over the last 15 or longer than years, 
Um, it's really become a second home to me in a, a lot of ways. Um, you know, originally when I first started going there, there were a lot of these really interesting parallels to California, actually, I found, oh. you know, with the coast and the mountains being so close to the coast. And there was this familiarity in a way. Um, it's, of course, it's quite different. <laughs> the Andes are much higher than yeah. <laughs> the mountains in California. Um, but, um, and so there was kind of a familiarity, but obviously very, very different. It's a very, very different place. Um, but um, I've, you know, just had tremendous experiences in working with local community members as well as um, Peruvian archaeologists. Um, one of my favorite things um, to do there actually during my dissertation work was you know, I could spend the weekend kind of in the foothills of the Andes and looking up at these amazing highland um, fields where people, you know, were, were um, working their land. And I could drive an hour to the coast on weekends and um, enjoy watching local fishermen go out in their traditional reed boats. Um, and so just kind of the, the richness and the variety of um, landscape and, um, I'll just add food on top of that. Um, there's like one of the, one, some of the things I really enjoy um, about working there. So, um, you know, it's, I always, um, archeologists sometimes complain about their field conditions and I've certainly lived in kind of some challenging environments as part of the experience. Um, but again, a lot of us who are able to, are placed in these positions of privilege within academia, we also often get to kind of choose where we work. So I think that um, especially for those interested in pursuing archaeology, yes, like your the questions you're answer you're answering are really important. But if you don't have a passion or enjoyment for the place that you want to do the research, maybe you should rethink that field site for yourself because it's a dedicated, dedicated commitment. Mm -hmm. um, and I know personally for me, I would like to be comfortable where I'm working. Um, you know, or at least as comfortable as reasonable, right? Yes. Um, so, you know, I think that it's something that um, you should definitely consider. So, and I'll just add that one of the great benefits of working in that coca zone for my dissertation was it's also the major fruit growing zone today. So I just had incredible access to, um, to all kinds of varieties of fruit, passion fruits, um, mm -hmm. avocado, avocado, I just like would Anyway, it's it was a really really wonderful experience. Obviously, the favorite Peruvian dish. Uh, this is where most Peruvians always just shake their head at me when they ask me because this is the one that you know. What is your favorite Peruvian dish? And I always just say, Oh, I want to eat the fruit. I want to eat you know the the ten varieties of avocados, yeah. and I want to eat. <laughs> um, no, but I think actually my favorite kind of more traditional disc dish is a criollo dish, um, mm. and. Um, it's, it's, it's like stewed lamb with um, beans and rice. Gabby here doing a little fact check. Dr. Boswell actually let me know afterwards that her favorite dish is made with goat and not lamb. So that's kind of probably my, with a little avocado on the side, a little mm. salad on the side. That's so that's good. kind of probably my favorite traditional dish. I can't even, I need to stop talking about food because it's, it's almost 12 and my body's like, oh, lunchtime. Now my yeah. body's like, oh, food. Um, have you tried guinea pig while you've been there? Or actually, I don't even, it's, is it, it's still commonly eaten today. I know it was anciently, but. Yeah, it is. Um, so it's, I'd say that it's um, commonly eaten, not that people would necessarily eat it every day, but it's like a special meal, right? Mm. Um, 
So yes, so I've had guinea pig. Um, it's a common delicacy in the area that I've been working in. And I have to say, it's not my favorite um, favorite protein to have mm-hmm. with my meal, um, but I will happily eat it. Um, mm-hmm. Mostly just, this is just complaining. There isn't a lot, like you know, compared to chicken or compared to, um, compared to most actually, yeah. <laughs> I was gonna say compared to chicken, duck, um, and to beef, you know, like just like, there's just not much meat on. Yeah. Cause uh, it's so uh, much smaller. Yeah. And, and so I can imagine the meat that it is there. It's not like as tender. It's probably like a bit more gritty, but yeah, it is cool it really to be able to, to be able to eat and participate in something that has, you know, been a, a cultural yeah. tradition for so long. Yes. And it really is an important tradition. And actually the, the potatoes that, so there's this, they serve specific pota- type of potatoes if possible um, with them. I think they're called um, Papa, I they, I think they're, I think they're yellow potatoes mm. and they're round yellow potatoes. And they're, those, they're actually so delicious and rich. They taste like they have butter without having any butter mm. on them. Um, so that's uh, a bonus for that dish. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, I need a, oh, all right. On that same, um, on that same thought, what are some of your favorite murals, wakas, or like pottery forms that you've, or uh, I suppose, you know, other forms of artistic expression that you've kind of seen throughout your years of study? Yeah. Um, so I think that, of course, um, being kind of biased working outside of Trujillo, or the three sites are Chan Chan, um, the Wakas de Moche, um, and the third site is Waka El Burco, which not as many people get to there. Um, but all three of these sites were major, major, um, religious centers and actually Chan Chan. So Chan Chan was the capital of the Chimo empire, which follows, follows the Moche Mm -hmm. on the North coast of Peru. And Chan Chan was actually the largest adobe city in the new world. Um, today, much of the city of Trujillo is actually built on areas that would have, that were part of Chan Chan. Um, but there are these incredible friezes there that um, are pretty, unfortunately, um, are not as well preserved um, as we would like, but um, there are some incredible, you know, most of the the walls, these huge palace, we call them, um, we can just put air quotes, palaces um, at the site that, you know, the walls, what they did is they, they built um, friezes on the inside. Um, and so those that are preserved are exceptional and they um, they show different sea animals, they show different seabirds. Um, they're really, really impressive to see. Um, and Joanne Pillsbury has written about this that, oh, no, actually, I'm going to stop. I'm not, I'm like not going to be articulate about that. Um, let me okay. just talk about another site. <laughs> yeah. My favorite um, one that I learned about with you was the, and of course I can't remember it now, but maybe Sipan where the underground structure that had the really cool audio oh yeah Chavin uh, oh Chavin, Chavin yeah the really there. cool yeah that was that was really interesting to learn yeah about. no the audio is really cool there um but actually the uh yeah the and and well I would say and actually you know one of the reasons you know someone decided to do that study right to study the acoustics and enough of that building has been uh, excavated and preserved to be able to do a study like mm-hmm. that a lot of the spaces, a lot of the buildings, you know, a lot of these um, places, that's not possible to do necessarily. Um, but in in the Moche Valley, I'll just do like a big, 
big push um, for tourism to the Hoche Valley. If you're wondering where else you should go in Peru, you should go to Trujillo mm-hmm. um, and um, go to the site of Huacas de Moche, which is from the Moche culture. There are two monumental um, adobe buildings, Huaca de la Luna and Huaca del Sol. And at um, Huaca de la Luna, you can see this incredible, incredible wall. Um, I'm going to say four stories high. Um, and there are just, there are murals. And, you know, this would have been open to, this was, would have been an open to a plaza where a large number of people could have gathered and seen these murals. Mm-hmm. And these murals depict many, um, for those familiar with Moche art, um, depict many, many kind of the characters we see in Moche art, but we see the deity Ayapayak. We see very clearly the presentation is designed to kind of, you know, it's all, it's all for the audience, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's for people to, to see these different symbols from Moche cosmology um, and connect them to this place. Um, so that's really, it's, it's one of my favorite, favorite places to visit and see. Um, but the other thing I will add is that, you know, of course, we're super fortunate to have that preservation those murals are these these buildings i'm talking about are made out of adobe mm-hmm. <laughs> like adobe doesn't last unless it's taken yeah. care of and what um, what are they what minerals are they using to paint on the adobe so they're using different usually different types of pigments oh, okay um yeah so there have been a couple you know it's a great question there have been a couple of technical studies um, identifying things like cinnabar, mm. um, as well as I think that they're also potentially, there are other kind of natural, of course, natural resources that they were using. Um, but um, I will add that, like, you know, looking at those buildings just reminds us of how much has been lost. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, earlier in the podcast, I mentioned that cotton is kind of one of these first plants that we see people cultivating, you know, before they're even like living set and living in the same place all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that just makes me think of all the textile art, um, exceptional, you know, artisanry that um, Andean weavers, uh, abilities of Andean weavers that, you know, we, we only have a fragment of, um, of their incredible, I would say of the incredible material record in this, in this area. Um, and we know that in the Andes, you know, people, what people wore identified who you were, you know, what, what ethnic group you belong to. So, you know, thinking, in, especially for my current project and thinking about these Moche medals, I'm often thinking about the clothing that people would have worn with them. And so, um, I just kind of want to say, just kind of highlight how much information has been lost, right? Mm-hmm. Um, just because these are perishable material materials that don't uh, last for millions of years, unfortunately, like mm-hmm. plastic. <laughs> I did have a question in here about, um, you know, what's just what's some general advice you would give for other students that are considering, you know, attending graduate school or pursuing, you know, a career in your similar fields? Because, you know, I'm the more I talk with my fellow students, I feel like just in general there's so many paths and there's so many different ways to become a researcher, to become an academic, to become a museum curator, to be, you know, to do anything within the huge field of of anthropology. And I think sometimes just the little bits of advice, whether they're, you know, earth 
you know, changing or just simple can really be influential for those of us who there's so much that we want to do and so much more in graduate school. So yeah, what what's some advice that you would give to other people considering, you know, a career similar to yours? Yeah. Um, so I think that uh, in terms of considering uh, how to pursue um, pursue a career in archaeology, um, I think that you really um, need to, I mean, so un- unfortunately, graduate school is going to be required yes. um, <laughs> at, at some level. It's certainly at least the MA level. If, and mm-hmm, of course, mm-hmm. more and more people um, have their, are, you know, um, attain, obtaining doctorates now. Um, so that's, um, it, you know, it's not necessarily a good thing, but it's just the reality of how the field is evolving. Um, and so I think that in terms of considering graduate school, you should really get to know the program as much as you can and talk to, you know, the faculty members, but also talk to the students and learn about, um, you know, the reality of some of the challenges um, that exist. I'll also add that graduate school for those that pursue doctorates in the U.S., it's a really long time. And so, um, you know, you might go in saying, I guess like a lot of people go in saying, I'm going to study this. This is exactly what I'm going to do. And so many things change during graduate school. So just being open to those possibilities um, of change, I think is really important too. And look for opportunities um, where you kind of least expect to find them. I mean, I, for me, the community work that I started doing, I realized was I wanted it to be very important. It was very, oh, sorry, it was very important to me that I do this work in addition to the academic research that mm-hmm. I was in Peru to do. Um, and as a result, I found colleagues um, and institutions at UC San Diego where I did my doctoral work that I wouldn't have interacted with because I was doing that work and I benefited from that. Um, so just kind of explore the institution where you are throughout the time that mm-hmm. you're there um would be my encouragement um as well as of course trying to figure out learn as much about it before you go um and talk to as many people as you can and and i'll just add that if you are interested in going to graduate school most people if you're interested in working with them really reach out to them during the application process um you can learn a lot um about somebody you know from a 15 minute phone conversation or email exchange and I think that archaeologists overall, most of us are like really open to having conversations and excited about it. Um, and I think, you know, as you kind of suss out what your academic interests are and what you want to study and and the best places for you to do that, having conversations with the people there are really important. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think like you were saying, being open to um, opportunities, I think being open to serendipitous timing and really believing in that is kind of an important part of maybe not life in general, but opportunities. And they, they do really do come when you least expect them. And something that I always just, you know, something David Lawson said to, you know, Dr. David Lawson, who's a professor at UCSB was, you know, be, be kind and humble and, you know, let what comes your way, come your way and, you know, take advantage of the opportunities that, that you do get. And I think that that's a really good, really good motto to live by, especially in, you know, um, not necessarily a necessarily competitive environment, but an environment where lots of people are doing research and lots of people are producing very interest, you know, interesting projects. Just hoping, you know, that you can collaborate on anything is really, really awesome. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And um, 
yeah, I think weighing all those things and, and also re, you know, um, I have a, a lot of colleagues who, some who've finished their doctoral programs, um, others who didn't that are working in other fields that are thriving yes. with the skill sets that they've developed as a result of that. So um, I would say that too, of course, I think that most people in our graduate programs, like I'm going to be this, this is what I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think an important part is kind of figuring out for you what, what, you know, what job works for you best yeah. uh, as things do come up. And by that, means I'm not saying, oh, quit, you know, or anything mm-hmm. like walk in going, but like, yeah. it's a but, really important, important real thing to, to think about. Yeah. The job that you think you may be, that maybe your dream may not end up being my dream. And I actually, you know, as I get ready for grad school, that's something that I remind myself as I kind of create these, like in my perfect world scenarios, I also remind myself that it's okay that it's not like, just for yeah. example, like if I were to go to this grad school, I would have opportunity, you know, these internship opportunities to that would potentially lead to jobs and being like, well, and then if it doesn't, you know, those other paths are still very viable, you know, paths too. Absolutely. And, um, and I was going to say something, what was it? but it's okay. Go ahead. Well, and I'll just add, especially COVID. I mean, COVID has thrown mm-hmm. a wrench in everybody's life plans. In addition, mm-hmm. you know, on a very superficial level, you've been in your house. Most people have been, you know, potentially caring for family members that they didn't expect to care for, or, mm-hmm. you know, living conditions they didn't expect to have. Um, and, and I think that, you know, through, through this experience, like, I mean, who has not had a transformational year <laughs> Um, going through this experience and and I would assume I don't know it would be an interesting to compare people who started graduate school you know we're already in graduate school in COVID versus those mm-hmm. that will be going to graduate school kind of how they evaluate make evaluate make these priorities because things we're seeing now for example on people who are or at least I've seen in studies of people who are looking at um, high school seniors a lot of them who are going to four-year programs, they're choosing to stay close to home rather than going far away. And so I'm, it'll be really interesting, I think, to, to um, I mean, graduate school is kind of a different, a, a different circumstance than that, but yeah. I think it will be interesting to talk to people entering co- the graduate cohort, graduate mm-hmm. cohorts in the next several years to kind of yeah. have conversations about why they ended up where they did. 100%, yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. I, you know, I really enjoyed our conversation and I'm sure our listeners did it as well. And I remembered what I was going to say earlier, which is something Michelle Kuhn said, which is that, you know, maybe this is just like our patacucci that we're going through that we need to go through to come out on the other end and have a new cycle of renewed inspiration and, you know, and ideas. So I agree. I think, you know, I, I'm trying to look at it like that too. And I think we have a lot of optimism for, you know, the future, but also even just social movements and social awareness and, you know, racial, um, you know, how we can better be allies and how we can better support like our, our, our friends and our, you know, our fellow scholars of color has also been, you know, a great thing that's come out of, I mean, not necessarily that it like came out of the COVID time, but that has flourished during this past year and a half. So. Absolutely. I think, you know, it's allowed us to um, reprioritizing Mm -hmm. as has been happening and that's essential for the academy. Absolutely. Definitely. So thank you. 